nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for him, for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit uh, who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us, uh, taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, or considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgment about all things, for such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, but who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Thanks, Matty. Well, good evening, everyone. Hey, do keep your Bibles open at the passage that Matty just read for us. I don't know how many of you have been to Belgium or to the city of Leuven in Belgium, but if you go there, you can see a statue. It looks like this. It's got a Latin inscription, Fons Sapientiae, which means the source of wisdom. That's the title of the statue. And they've labeled it Fonski for short. And the, the, the statue is a tribute to the city's student life. And the water that the man is pouring over his head in the statue is meant to symbolize wisdom flowing into his brain from the book he's got in his hand in his reading. But I don't think that's what wisdom is. Wisdom isn't the same thing as knowing stuff. Wisdom isn't about how much, how many facts you can cram into your brain. Real wisdom isn't something you can, you can work at through reading and study. However well you do at school, however hard you work at university, that's knowledge. That's not wisdom. The Bible tells us something else. Last Sunday, if you were here, we were thinking about how the gospel looks foolish to the world. And so do Christians. They look foolish to the world. And so do preachers. And, and we just, well, we just have to learn to live with that. And it's increasingly the situation in England. But Paul says, actually, in fact, the gospel is wise. So chapter 2, verse 6, we do speak a message of wisdom amongst the mature. It's just a different kind of wisdom from the world's so-called wisdom. So Paul says we do speak a message of wisdom, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. The Fonsky statue is really giving the wrong message. Real wisdom isn't human cleverness at all. So Paul says, we declare God's wisdom. And that turns out to be something very different. Paul talks here about two distinct kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom of this age in verse 6, and then there's God's wisdom in verse 7. And look what he says. He says, the wisdom of this age belongs to the rulers of this age. 
meaning those who are in power in the world. They're just for the here and now, their time is fleeting. Paul says they're coming to nothing. And you don't need a PhD in politics or, or history to grasp that. Once um, one piece of a research has listed what they think are the wisest people, the so-called wisest people in history, along with their estimated IQ. And the top four are these. Goethe, IQ 220. Leonardo da Vinci, IQ 200. Isaac Newton, IQ 192. Gottfried Leibniz, IQ 191. Where are they now? Well, they're dead, aren't they? Probably there are some of them you haven't even heard of. Yes, they were, they were uber clever, but clever doesn't last. The Bible divides history into two eras. There's this present age characterized by human rebellion and despair and death. And then there's the age to come, God's rule, already broken into the world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul describes God's wisdom in verse 7 as a mystery. And when you read the word mystery in the New Testament, it always means something that was concealed until the time came for it to be revealed. And the gospel isn't something that that God dreamed up 2,000 years ago when he sent the Lord Jesus into the world. In his wisdom, God ordained salvation, Paul says in verse 7, before time began. But it was a mystery until Jesus came. We declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. And it's still a mystery for unbelievers. Those in power in the world don't get it. They didn't back then, and they don't get it now. None of those, verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, they didn't see what God was doing. They hadn't a clue. If they had actually been convinced that Jesus was the eternal Son of God come into this world as a man, they wouldn't have crucified him, would they? Real wisdom isn't human cleverness. Real wisdom, real wisdom is God's wisdom. Real wisdom is God's wisdom, and it's given only to those to whom God chooses to give it. Real wisdom is hidden from the world. The important and the influential people of Paul's day didn't understand the gospel, And none of your non-Christian friends or family understand it either. They, They may have listened when you told them the gospel. They may have come to church with you. They may may even have read a Christian book you gave them, but it all meant nothing to them. It wasn't that they didn't hear it, they did hear it. They heard the same wonderful truths that turned your life upside down. How How could they just discount it all somehow? I remember, I remember when she was alive, taking my mother to church many times and the gospel being clearly explained, as clear as could be. And in the way home in the car, I would say, well, mom, what did you think? 
And she would say, oh, he was a very good speaker, dear. Yes, but what about what he actually said, mother? Well, it was quite interesting. And my mother was a, a highly intelligent woman, but she just didn't get it. It's like Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, no matter how clever they may be. I wonder if you've had that, that experience as a Christian. You've taken someone along to church, you've taken someone along to see you, and the gospel has been faithfully explained, and it just seemed to go in one ear and out the other. Do you, do you remember before you were a Christian coming to church and it just left you cold? Maybe you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian. Well, we're delighted you're here looking into Christianity. But I wonder how much sense is all this making to you? Calvin once wrote, the blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of the gospel. And he went on, the sun is no less resplendent when the blind do not perceive its light. And that's right, isn't it? The problem isn't with the gospel of the Bible. The problem isn't with the preacher. The problem is with the darkened heart of the hearer. An anthropologist called Andre Singer describes how he spent a period living in a remote desert in a primitive culture, and the members of the tribe came to believe that paper had a mystical quality. Well, why was that? Well, they'd watched him use banknotes when he'd arrived, and they'd seen him sitting staring for hours at a block of paper, which was a book he'd brought with him, and they'd taken the book and they'd looked at it and they'd handled it and they'd given it back, but it didn't change them because they couldn't read. It's a bit like taking someone to see a beautiful painting. If they're blind, it's going to mean nothing to them. Nothing wrong with the painting, but light without sight is darkness. That's the truth. Light without sight is darkness. That's what Paul is saying here. When someone hears the gospel, unless or until God opens their eyes, they don't get it, no matter how clever they may be. There's an Indian philosopher called Vishal Mangalwadi, and he studied at university, and he said this, I knew that my professors knew that the philosophers knew that they did not know and could not know the truth. And that at least is realistic, until or unless God opens your eyes. Now, we don't know whose eyes God is going to open. All we can do as Christians is tell as many people the gospel as we have the opportunity. But until or unless God opens their eyes, they're going to remain in the dark, no matter how clever they are. And here's why Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the gospel. But for Christians, something wonderful has happened. And Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. 
Well, Paul goes on and he quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah there in verse 9. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who love him. The gospel is more wonderful than we can begin to imagine. Who, who could have dreamed up God sending his own eternal son to die a horrible death because we rebelled against him? Who could have invented an idea like that? But this unfathomable truth, this, this marvel we could, we could never have seen for ourselves, this has been revealed to us. Verse 10, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Real wisdom, God's wisdom is hidden from the world, but it's revealed by the spirit. So we read in verse 10, the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Searches, it means, it means know through and through. And Paul goes on, who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Only God's spirit understands God's mind. But now, and here's the amazing thing. Now, if you're a Christian, you have God's spirit living in you and, and it changes everything. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, says Paul, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Well, what is it that God has freely given us? Well, it's nothing less than this. The Holy Spirit draws us into the life of God. Some of you will have come across Mike Rees, maybe at a conference or you've read one of his books, but he's written this. The Father has eternally delighted in the Son through the Spirit, and the Son delighted in the Father. Listen, the Spirit's work in giving us new life is nothing less than to bring us to share in their mutual delight. Isn't that astonishing? So, what does that look like in practice? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit changes how we think. He changes how we think. So verse 12. The Spirit who is from God, given to us so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Now that doesn't mean that the Christian understands everything about God. But it does mean that increasingly we think like God. Someone has described it as thinking God's thoughts after him. Christians think differently from other people. It's not that we're cleverer than other people. It's that God has shone his light into our hearts and minds to see things rightly. Now, some people have misunderstood these verses and misapplied them and, and said something like this. If the Holy Spirit mysteriously instills knowledge into my head, that, doesn't mean, that means I don't have to think and I don't have to read my Bible. I can just sit back and let it happen. And, and there's been a, a sort of anti-intellectualism sometimes in parts of the church, a sort of woolly mysticism, divorced from God's revelation of himself in the Scriptures. And that ends up with all sorts of wild ideas and errors. 
don't go there. God has given us the Bible to guide us and instruct us. And what the Holy Spirit does is help us to understand the Bible rightly. Because without the Holy Spirit, the Bible is just foolishness, as it was to my mother. Now, I've told some of you before how I became a Christian when I was a medical student. And I heard the gospel, and I wasn't going to get into this Christianity thing without looking into it properly. And I bought a Bible, and I stubbornly read it all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. And some of it was interesting, and some of it was dreadfully boring. And there was lots of it I didn't understand. But the bit that annoyed me most was Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I thought, this guy, he can't even write in proper sentences. And then three months later, I read Ephesians again. Wonderful. Here was God speaking to me. I hadn't got smarter. I'd been saved. The Holy Spirit enabled me to think differently. And that's your experience too if you're a Christian, isn't it? Secondly, the Holy Spirit changes how we speak. Verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Now, Paul said of himself back in in verse 4 of this chapter, he said, yes, 2 verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. None of the self-promoting bluster of the philosophers of his day. But he says in verse 4, he says, not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. It's about speaking the gospel with the help of the Holy Spirit. I wonder, have you ever wondered how you'd get on if you were persecuted for your faith? Would you have the courage to speak up for Jesus? Would you have the words to witness for Jesus? Well, it's the Holy Spirit that equips believers in times like that, enabling the believer to explain spiritual realities with spirit-taught words in a way they could never have thought they were able to do. Jesus told his disciples when they were arrested and put on trial that at that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This isn't just about how to speak to other men and women. The Holy Spirit helps us when we speak to God in prayer. Paul wrote to the Romans, we do not know what we ought to pray for, But the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Now, I want to read you something written by Ray Ortland, who's a pastor in the United States. Listen to what he wrote. We do not need to understand in order to pray, because God does understand. When you lie in a hospital bed with tubes stuck in you and you can hardly put two sentences together, the Spirit will intercede for you through your groans. 
And when you have a stroke and can't speak properly, and you find yourself cut off from those who love you most, the Lord will hear the longings of your heart. And when you're hit by a drunk driver and your lifeblood is flowing out of you in the twisted wreckage of your car, in those final moments of semi-consciousness, when all you can do is moan, God will understand your prayer, take your devastation in his mighty hands, and subdue it to his glorious purposes. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit changes how we think and changes how we speak, including prayer. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit changes how we make judgments. So, verse 15, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. And this is about discerning what's right and what's wrong. The thinking of unbelievers is is skewed. Their consciences are distorted. They call right wrong and wrong right. And, and some, some of them manage to convince themselves there is no God, that there is no absolute morality. Paul wrote in Romans, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So contrast the person without the Spirit and the person with the Spirit. Verse 14, this person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Verse 15, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. Despite the fact that we're hugely outnumbered by unbelievers, they're morally blind. They cannot understand the things that come from the Spirit of God. I wonder if that's something you found, is it? You try to speak to an unbeliever about spiritual things and they they just don't get it. They may laugh. They may shrug. They may get annoyed. Your, your, your friend at school or university or, or your family member, they may even think you're a bit crazy. But listen, the blind have no right to tell the sighted that the sighted cannot see. We are, as Christians, verse 15, not subject to merely human judgments. Unbelievers may be ever so clever like the Fonsky statue, their brains stuffed with all sorts of information, but they're blind to what's really important. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit helps you to see things straight and to make right judgments. Now, sadly, these verses we are looking at in in 1 Corinthians 2, they've been sadly misused in some places, to justify a sort of spiritual elitism. People have tried to claim a two-tier Christianity. Those who had some sort of second blessing or special experience and have the Holy Spirit, and those lesser Christians who haven't somehow arrived. But each and every Christian has the Holy Spirit living in them from the moment they're saved. The New Testament knows nothing about first-class Christians and second-class Christians. New Testament tells us we are all one in Christ Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit is at work in each and every Christian, transforming us in how we think and in how we speak and in how we make judgments. And it's not that in giving us the Holy Spirit, God has relieved us of all responsibility. No, God has given us much greater dignity than that. Made in his image, men and women have much more dignity in God's eyes. Christians are being progressively restored into God's image. And we're to demonstrate God's character in the world. Real wisdom is hidden from the world but revealed by the Spirit. And as Paul ends his explanation of how it is that it's only Christians who are truly wise, he says something quite extraordinary. He quotes the prophet Isaiah, a question Isaiah asked in verse 16 there. Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Now, put put a finger in 1 Corinthians and turn to Isaiah chapter 40, if you would. It's on page 725, if you're using the church Bible. Page 725. We're just going to jump in the middle of a passage here. Isaiah 40, we're going to start at verse 12. Isaiah asks, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains in the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? So who taught God any of these things? Well, the answer is obvious. These are rhetorical questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? No one, only God. Who's held the dust of the earth in the basket? No one, only God. Who has weighed the mountains? Just God. But as we look again at verse 13 of Isaiah 40, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? And Paul picks that up back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? We have. We Christians have. If you look back up in Second Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2 up to verse 11, Paul says, who knows a person's thoughts except their spirit in them? And then he says in verse 16, we have God's spirit living in us. We have the mind of Christ. Is that not astonishing? We have the mind of Christ. And there are these Corinthian Christians jostling for position and putting their leaders in pedestals. But if they're truly saved, the spirit of God is living in them and growing in them the mind of Christ. What will that look like? Well, like this. Um, look at, second, at uh, Philippians chapter 2. It should come up on the screen for us. I hope. There we go. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And Paul goes on in Philippians 
your mindset should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That's the mind of Christ. That's what we're being changed into. That's real wisdom. That's godly wisdom. And it's a million miles from the Corinthians jostling for position and putting their leaders on pedestals and trying to look important. So let's pray that we might delight in having the mind of Christ growing in us. And let's help each other to be more and more Christ-like, confident that the Holy Spirit in us is changing us and growing in us the mind of Christ. Let's pray for that now, shall we? Heavenly Father, we're just blown away to think and read in your word that you are giving us the mind of Christ and drawing us into the relationships of the Godhead and changing how we think, transforming us by the renewing of our minds. Heavenly Father, please help us to run away, run a mile from the sort of competitive nature that Paul has been warning the Corinthian Christians against. Please grow in us the humility that Jesus showed as he became a man and was prepared to go to death, even death on a cross. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being your children. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Please change us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Amen.